Friends, at this time, I want to invite our kids forward. Any kid who's here, roughly ages 10 and under, if you want to come forward and sit on the front row with us, we're going to have a special kid sermon. Parents, you can come with your kids and sit with them if you want to. Um, But don't be shy. Come on down. Grab a seat. Grab a seat right there, Gabe. Two kids to a chair, maybe. Get cozy. Welcome, guys. Who here is excited about Christmas? One person, just Helen. Okay. You guys excited about Christmas? You guys ready to celebrate tomorrow? What do you guys like to do on Christmas Day? Open presents, open presents, open presents. Anything else? That's it, open presents. Awesome. Very cool. Yeah, wonderful. I'm glad your parents are telling you about the meaning of Christmas. That's great. Very nice. Um, let me ask you a really complicated question right out of the gate. You, you probably won't be able to answer this right away. You have to think about this. What is your fourth favorite holiday? Easter. Someone knew Easter right off the bat. Okay. You've got them ranked in your mind. Who else wants to weigh in? Do you guys want to think through it together? What's your first favorite holiday? Christmas. What's your second favorite holiday? Halloween. Halloween. (laughs) I did not account for Halloween. Okay, let's just put that one to the side. (laughs) What else could be your second favorite? Easter. Okay, I heard of Easter. What about your third? Maybe Thanksgiving at this point? That would help me. Yes, Thanksgiving. Okay, so then what would be your fourth favorite? I think it's a tie. I forgot about Halloween. So your fourth favorite is a tie between two holidays, which are? Valentine's. Valentine's, absolutely. I would have said Valentine's or 4th of July. But we're going with Valentine's today, okay? So this is really odd because it's Christmas Eve and I'm talking about Valentine's. Isn't that bizarre to be putting those two things together? But actually the passage I'm going to read connects those two holidays because it's going to tell us that Christmas, like Valentine's, is all about love. Now, do you guys know where Valentine's Day came from? Nobody really knows. I mean, people might tell you 1,500 years ago, there was a guy named St. Valentine, blah, 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 but that's not the real story. Three people got together. Kay Jewelers, (laughs) uh, Godiva Chocolate, and Max Lucado. And they all said, how are we going to push some product in February? And we came up with Valentine's. That's where Valentine's came from. But why do we love that holiday? What's so special about Valentine's Day? It's what? It's loving. We love Valentine's. We love mushy, gushy holidays where we tell everybody how much we love them. And we're going to hear today that actually Christmas and Valentine's, they have those two things in common. They are all about love. Both of them are a love story. Isn't that interesting? We don't often think about those two as being connected in that way. Well, today I want to tell you guys a love story. How many of you all like to hear a good old-fashioned love story? A a few of the girls do, and Gabe. Thank you, buddy. Um, So we're going to tell a love story. This was first told by a man named Soren Kierkegaard. You don't have to remember that, but it's going to be a sweet love story. 
It starts with a king in a palace. There was a very, very powerful king. He had tons of money. Everybody knew him and loved him. He was very powerful. He had anything you can imagine. What are some of the things you guys are asking for Christmas tomorrow? Toys. He had tons of toys. A what? A bike. You know, this king had like five bikes. Lots of bikes. Books. He had all the books you could read. The new Lego Millennium Falcon, the $800 one. He had two of those, just in case one broke. Helen, you want money? Yeah, he had tons of money. <laughs> Burkhalters, wherever you are, you're getting the Christmas list out. Okay, Helen wants money. This king had everything you can imagine, except he was missing one thing that made him very, very sad. This king wasn't married. He didn't have a wife. He didn't have a queen. And he was very, very lonely. He had all the material things he wanted, but he did not have a wife, and he was a lonely man. So one day the king was riding through his kingdom and he passed through a village and when he passed through the village he saw a beautiful peasant girl. She was there, she was working, she caught his eye. He asked other people about her and said, yes, she's a wonderful girl, she loves Jesus, everybody speaks well of her, she's a a wonderful woman and the king was head over heels in love. He loved this girl, and he wanted to pursue her, and he wanted to marry this girl. So the king went back to his palace, and he started to think, how does a king go about marrying someone who's very poor and doesn't have a lot of money? How, how could the two of those worlds come together? And he came up with a couple of bad ideas to pursue this girl. The first idea he had is, what if I just made a royal decree? What if I made a law that she has to love me and she has to marry me. Do you think that would work? No. No. Why not? Uh, Why not? I do not know. You don't know? Yeah. We just have the sense that that probably wouldn't go well. If you're being commanded to love somebody, that's probably not going to be a happy marriage. So he said, okay, I'm going to scrap that idea. I've got a second idea. This is what I'm going to do. I'm going to show up at her doorstep and I'm going to be dressed in my royal splendor. I'll have my robe, I'll have my crown, I'll have a scepter, I'll have my sword, I'll have bags of money. She'll be so impressed that she'll want to marry me. But then he thought, actually, that's a bad idea too. Why, why did he think that was a bad idea? It would be like bragging, yeah. And he wouldn't be clear if she was marrying him for him or for his money. That's probably not going to work. So then he had a third idea that also wasn't going to work. And he said, what if I trick her? What if I dress up as a peasant? I come to her house. She thinks I'm a peasant. And then, lo and behold, she falls in love with me. And I win her hand in marriage. Why is that going to be a bad idea? Yeah, he's lying to her. Do not start a dating relationship based on a lie. You all understand that? Don't do that. That's not a good idea. So finally, the king had a fourth idea that actually was the one that was going to work, and this is what he did. Instead of pretending to be like a peasant, he actually became a peasant. He gave up his crown, 
He gave up his money. He gave up his palace. He moved into the village. He wasn't acting like a peasant. He became one. He worked like people in the village worked. He ate what they ate. He suffered like they suffered. And as a fellow peasant, he met this girl. They fell in love with each other. They were married and they lived happily ever after. Isn't that a beautiful story? No? No? (laughs) Okay. (laughs) I'll think of another one next week. Um, That's a beautiful story, and it's a make-believe story, but it actually tells us a little bit about what God's love is like for us. You know that God is like that rich and powerful king. He lives in the dimension of heaven, He has all glory and all splendor. He lives in brightness and beauty. In fact, when you trust in Jesus and you die and you see God face to face, your heart will well up inside of you and you will say, this is who I've always wanted. He he dwells in all beauty. And you and I are actually like the peasant. We don't live in the dimension of heaven. We live in the dimension of earth. And we live in relative poverty compared to God and his glory and his riches. And God said to himself, I love these people. I love you. And I love you. And I love you. I'm head over heels for you. And I want to spend the rest of my life with you. How can I make you know that I love you? Well, God is powerful. He could do anything. He could try like the king to do what the king did. He could make a royal decree and say, you have to love me. Or he could show up, he could divide heaven and show up in all his glory so that we'd be afraid of him and do whatever he says. He could trick us and pretend like he was a human being so that we would love him. But we said that none of those things would really work. The only way for God to communicate his love for us, to tell us that he really does love us, is that if he would actually become a peasant with us. Do you know that at Christmas time, we believe that God was born as a human being, just like you were. He became a kid, just like you were. He had to share with his siblings, just like you do. He got bossed around by his parents, just like you guys do, he became like you in every way for one reason. That you would fall in love with him and that you could spend the rest of your lives with him. That's the story of Christmas. It's a love story between a king and a peasant, between God of all the universe and us as his children. Isn't that a beautiful, beautiful story? Let me pray that God would help us trust that story more and more. Father, we pray that as we celebrate Christmas, that you have come in the flesh, that you've won a people for yourself. Lord, help us here to know that you love us, that by becoming a human being, what you're trying to say to us is that you desire us, You love us, you want a relationship with us, and that we can be wed to you happily ever after forever. Teach us this, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you so much, guys. You can go back to your seats if you want.
Folks, I'm going to have the rest of us turn in our Bibles to 1 John 4. I want to open up 1 John 4 for us, and I'm just going to talk for another 10 minutes or so from this very important passage of Scripture. We've been talking through Advent all through 1 John, but I want to make an interesting point about 1 John that relates to exactly what we're talking about today. This is really interesting. You can make a bar graph of all the New Testament books in the Bible to discover a very specific point. If you put all the books of the New Testament on the bottom axis, you've got every, every book from Matthew to Revelation, and you put on the other axis how many times each of those books uses the word love, you would find something very interesting. Now, some of us can guess where we'd see the most occurrences of the word love, right? Some of us can think, I've read Romans, I've read 1st and 2nd Corinthians. I can imagine that those are going to show a lot of words love. And truly, they do. You look on your bar graph, and you see Ephesians, and you see Corinthians, and you see Romans, and you see love kind of clustered in those books, and you say, wow, those are books that have a lot to do with love. But if you took a step back from your bar graph and looked, far and away, the major occurrences of the word love happen in two books in the New Testament. The Gospel of John and 1 John. Those two books absolutely dominate the landscape. They have far and away more occurrences of the word love. The disciple that Jesus loved can't help but talk about God's love. Now, not only does John and 1 John, not only do they have more occurrences of the word love, but the chapter I'm going to read from, 1 John chapter 4, actually in this chapter alone, has more occurrences of the word love than any other entire New Testament book besides the Gospel of John. Did you even follow what I said? I mean, there are more occurrences of love here in this one chapter than the whole book of Ephesians, than the whole book of Romans, than the whole book of 1 Corinthians, than the whole book of 2 Corinthians, more in this one chapter alone. We refer to 1 Corinthians 13 as the love chapter, right? Because it's all about love, and the word love shows up in 1 Corinthians 13 nine times, which is really impressive. The word love occurs in our chapter 27 times. Triple the love chapter. So it's no surprise when we get to our fourth and final reason of the incarnation, Jesus was manifest to show the love of God. The only place in the Bible we can turn to first would be 1 John chapter 4. Let me just read a few verses starting in verse 7. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be a propitiation for our sins. Let's pray together. God, we're going to study our Bibles 
We just made a bar graph of our Bibles. We want to learn and get new information from our Bibles. But this morning we're talking about love, which is not going to happen in our minds. It's going to happen in our hearts, which means your Holy Spirit is going to have to do something miraculous. You're going to have to take words from a page and you're going to have to implant them in our hearts that we might feel the affection of a father for his children. Would you do that miracle this morning and tomorrow and in this Advent season? We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Now, anytime I read John, whether it's in his gospel or when it, whether it's in his letters, 1 John, as we're reading here, there's something that really annoys me about John as a writer. I don't, I don't know if you're even allowed to speak in these ways about inspired scripture, but he's very cyclical in his thinking, right? He kind of gets an idea and he circles around it. He finds a theme and he gets near it and then he backs away and then he repeats himself and it's kind of hard to understand exactly what his main point is. So anytime I read John, I get out a piece of graph paper and a pencil and I try to map out exactly what he's trying to say to me. That's what I do. I kind of disentangle, if you will, what he's saying to get his exact point. And if you do that in these verses, which are very cyclical, you'll actually find that God is making four moves surrounding Christmas. God is preparing for, God is delivering, God is making good on the promise of Christmas in four ways. He makes four moves, and we're just going to look at each one of these very, very briefly. Here's the first move around Christmas. That is, God is love. That's the first move of Christmas. God is love. I think it's possible to miss the awesome, gracious wonder of Christmas if we miss what happens in the mind and the heart of God before Christmas. You start on Christmas Day and you don't hear the backstory and you're going to miss some of the splendor of what Christmas means. Here's what I mean. We are naturally suspicious of acts of kindness, right? As human beings, we know there's no such thing as a free lunch. We're suspicious when people are kind to us and speak well of us because we think they want something from us, right? We can't help ourselves. We have that kind of suspicion. If you don't know what I'm talking about, think of telemarketers. I mean, that's a perfect example of someone who's polite, who wants something for you, from you. Now, all of us have experienced have experienced telemarketers, but only those of us who work in the church have experienced ministry telemarketers. That's like a whole nother dimension of pain to experience. When you're in the church and someone calls and you think it's a member in need and you pick up the phone and somebody says, oh, Pastor Gentino, Hey, brother, it's so good to hear your voice. I've been praying for you all week. And it's like, come on, man. Let's cut to the chase. What are you trying to sell the church? We, we're just suspicious of someone who calls us out of the blue like that. Well, now we get to Christmas, and we see God appear in the flesh, and we want to know, what do you want from me? What's the catch? 
Why have you come? Why are you acting in such a gracious way towards me? What do you want from me? What do you want me to do? 1 John 4 peels back the curtain of God's driving motivation for why he puts us in his eternal debt. 1 John 4 is the fine print on the contract of our eternal life. We get to hear what's behind this act of kindness because John tells us very plainly. Verse 8, God is love. Verse 7, love is from God. Verse 10, God first loved us. That's it. That's the motivation. That's the driving force. That's the fine print. God is motivated to perform Christmas by his love. Do you believe that? God is not reluctant. God is not begrudging. God is not grasping. God does not feel himself backed into a corner. God is purely motivated by the love that dwells inside of himself perfectly that now he may freely extend to the world. He loves us. That's what gets him out of bed in the morning with respect to our salvation, so to speak. It is through the perfect, inexpressible love of God. You need to know that that's the first move of Christmas. It happens before Christmas Day. That's move number one. Think about move number two. God's motivated by love. And now move two, God sends his son. He feels this impulse. He acts on it. Verse 9, In this the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world. That means God's not just off in a corner with feelings of love for us. He actually turns around and puts feet to the love he feels. God says this in his mind. I love humanity. I've created humanity. I've created every single person in this room. I know them by name and I've known them before the foundations of the world. I knit each one of them in their mother's womb. They are fearfully and wonderfully made. I love them and I cherish them. How can I communicate that to my creation? 1 John 4.10 In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son. I don't know if you guys are like me, but I'm always trying to put stipulations on God's love. I I want God's love to be delivered to me in the way I would best interpret that love. So I think to myself, God, if you loved me, you would do this for me. If you really loved me, you would stop causing me pain. If you really loved me, you would provide this for me. If you really loved me, this would happen. If you really loved me, you would answer this prayer. We make these stipulations about God's love and we tell him we're ready and open and willing to receive your love as long as you deliver it to us in the way we're expecting to receive it. And God says ever so gently, I am love. I'm the author of love. 
Every pure impulse of love you have that comes in your heart has actually come from me. I'm the way who designs how love is communicated. I want you to receive it in the way that I choose to deliver it. And this is love. Christmas is God's great attempt to tell you, I see you, I know you, I carry you in your pain, and I love you. There is something deeply personal and intimate about Christmas because it is God the Father sending His Son to communicate His love perfectly to those who will receive it. God's motivated by love. God sends His Son. Move three. God gives His Son, His only Son, over to death. Verse 10, we see that the Son is the propitiation for our sins. Now, propitiation, that's a fancy theological word that means that the penalty for sin has now been paid for, which means that God's just wrath, His just anger towards our sin is now satisfied. He no longer carries that wrath. There is no longer judgment. He has justified His love for us. You actually can't have the celebration of Christmas without the cross, and you can't have the cross without Christmas. God must come at Christmas, come born as a baby, born in the flesh, 100% God, 100% man, and that same God must die on the cross to put his love for humanity in motion. These are the movements of God to love us, to send his son, to give his son over to death so that fourth and finally God might win himself a family. This is what God is after. This is what God has wanted from eternity past. This is what God has been willing to endure, the humility of having the riches of heaven and exchange them for the humility of being born in the flesh, of suffering, of walking with us, and ultimately dying a gruesome death on the cross. What God wanted to achieve is verse 7, that you and I might Be born of God. God the Son was born in the flesh so that sons and daughters might be born of God in the Spirit. The new life that's made available to us at Christmas is this from verse 12. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. That's the fruit of God's labor. That's the reward of what God has pursued. You and I are now knit in a loving family, not just in and of ourselves, but we abide in the presence of God, and His love is now perfected in us. Let's pray together. Father, I pray that for all the things we think about Christmas, for all the emotions we have surrounding Christmas, that this one would be communicated loud and clear. 
that you see us, that you know us, that you've knit us, that you've created us, that you carry us, and now through the sending of your son as a babe born in a manger, you say to us in no uncertain terms, I love you. And I want to spend the rest of my life with you. Give us ears to hear. Give us hearts to receive. In whatever ways the devil is speaking to us this season to steal and kill and destroy, let him be silent. And let the words of the manger speak loud and clear. You're a father who loves and delights and calls a family to himself. We praise you for that in Jesus' name. Amen.